At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. Yo, yo, this is Peter J. Kim on the Food 52 Podcast Network. And you're listening to Counter Jam, the show that celebrates culture through food and music. On this episode, we're going across the pond to the land of tea and crumpets, the United Kingdom. We'll be getting perspectives on British food culture on two fronts, at home and on the street. For the home side of things, we have none other than Mary McCartney, the host of Mary McCartney Serves It Up on the Food Network. On the street side, we have Jonathan Nunn, the founder and editor of the food newsletter Vittles. The music on this episode is by British rapper Hyphen, who describes his music as, quote, sexy lounge rap, end quote. Hyphen's music is not only sexy, it's uplifting. One of the through lines in his music is a positive message about self-acceptance and self-love. This is rooted in his own experience battling depression. For this groovy track you're hearing right now, he had writer's block until an aha moment struck keep trying so I keep keep trying to write it keep trying to write it and I was like oh just not getting really frustrated can't do it damn I was like you know what take a second took a deep breath went and had a shower got out was just you know just doing moisturizing a bit of self-care you know just have a little <laughs> shave all this kind of thing and then I just felt so much better and I was like this is what the song is about obviously like the moment I just like took a second to be like stop beating yourself up stop like forcing it just trust yourself to have the answer like everything you need you've got within like you've got it you like don't you don't have to force it here's cocoa butter by hyphen self-love cocoa butter on skin everything you need you have got within uh, self-love cocoa butter on skin everything you need you have got within i cry tears over someone who never really cared scared i wouldn't be the same without them guess i was correct now i'm twice as good and i'm way past all of the times that would get to me a voice in my head worst enemy always telling me that i'm not worth anything i went from praying that something might help to listening to kendrick like i love myself Self-love, cocoa bar on skin Everything you need, you have got within I don't hear a word that they have to say Because I'm finally proud that I'm this way The mirror sees someone who smiles and he means it Feels like that, then I'm undefeated Self-love, cocoa bar on skin Everything you need, you have got within I used to lie about my plans at the weekend The shame that I wanna do music The people that I told said it was a phase But I'm still right here, man, I proved it Everyday improvement People want you to do what they would But they told me what I can't do I showed them what I could I put my soul in this art, now I'm growing as I should If I listen to them, then I wouldn't have started So it's self-love, cocoa bar on skin Everything you need, you have got within I don't hear a word that they have to say Because I'm finally proud that I'm this way The mirror sees someone who smiles and he means it Feels like that, then I'm undefeated Self-love, cocoa bar on skin Everything you need, you have got within Self-love, cocoa bar on skin Everything you need, you have got within I don't hear a word that they have to say Because I'm 
delicada, I'm this way. The mirror sees someone who smiles and he means it. Feels like that, then I'm undefeated. Self-love, cocoa butter on skin. Everything you need, you have got within. Like that, then I'm undefeated. I used to think self-love was this narcissistic thing of looking in a mirror and saying, I am the greatest person to ever live. And I don't think it's that. I think it's just look after yourself, treat yourself like a friend, and you just feel better about everything. That was Cocoa Butter by Hyphen. My first guest, Mary McCartney, has an excellent show on the Food Network, appropriately called Mary McCartney Serves It Up. On it, she provides easy, delicious ideas for home entertaining. Our conversation started out, well, quite pleasantly, but then was disrupted by someone who probably could have used a little cocoa butter in their lives. Well, hello, good morning, good afternoon, Mary. I am so honored to have you on the show. Um, I wanted to just quickly give you a little background about myself and the show and then dive into things. I listened to the show. Oh, you did? Okay, which episode yeah. did you check out? I've listened to it. I did the Femi Kuti, the uh, Gilberto, the Ziggy Marley. Oh, yeah. Well, I hope you enjoyed it. It's, yeah, I love uh, them. Yeah, fe- You're a well-traveled man. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Then you know a little bit about my background and the, the approach to the show. And so, of course, this episode is looking at British cuisine and British culture. Ooh. British horn honking. <laughs> Sorry about that. I don't know why that honking is going on. Oh, I'm in I'm in New York City, so people Road just rage. Yeah, they honk, and there's actually zero purpose for the honking. And I often want to just look at them, and be like, why? why? What does this accomplish? Well, obviously, I've only just met you, but I can tell that you and I are a bit more chilled. We're like, honking isn't going to be the solution. Like everybody, just try and you know have some respect for each other. We'll get through this stress. Oh yeah, I told my son, who's uh, four years old. That I could count on two hands the number of times I've honked at somebody. I wish there were a button for a very friendly I'm sorry sound. That would be like, you know. <laughs> oh, but you know, in England, that's all we do is we apologize. We just say like, if you're on the subway, if you're on the tube and it's really busy and someone like steps on you, you kind of go, oh, terribly sorry. You've just stepped on my foot. Terribly sorry, but you just knocked into me. Actually, an American friend of mine said that he was going to design an alarm clock that when it beeped in the morning to wake you up, it's like, I'm terribly sorry, but it's time to wake up. Oh, wow, that's great. (laughs) So is there a lot of passive aggression embedded in that? I'm terribly sorry. Very. It's like, like, terribly sorry, but it's time to wake up. (laughs) Get your ass out of bed. (laughs) It's very British. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm half American, half British. I consider myself half and half. That's right. I'm that's really right. sorry. Should I go out and find that person? And I'm terribly sorry, but... Uh, <laughs> terribly sorry, you... but I'm doing a podcast. Yeah, I'm terribly sorry, but you're making me hate the universe right now. Thankfully, the honking seemed to have stopped, so we got on with the interview. Mary's show, Mary McCartney Serves It Up, is exceptional in several regards. First of all, it's eminently practical. You get the sense watching it that you could actually do these things and have a fantastic dinner party, just like Mary. Second, it's vegetarian, though you almost wouldn't even notice. And third, Mary has some extraordinary guests, including, oh, Oprah and one Sir Paul McCartney, her dad. 
What I loved about the episode with Dad was that it feels very close to what we would do at home. Like, it, you know, it was very relaxed. He will make the cocktail, the margarita, which we now coined to be called a macarita. But he does make that often when I'm sort of preparing dinner. He'll make the cocktail. So it felt quite relaxed. The episode that Dad is on is called celebration so it's sort of what you would have we would have like say you would have it for Thanksgiving or over the holidays but actually really growing up in England we have this tradition of uh, Sunday roast Mm. where on a Sunday traditionally families will try and sit down together (laughs) terribly sorry I'm going to go and have a look out in the street I'll be right back Mary McCartney is off to handle business They've gone away. It was I, It was what I thought. Somebody was blocking the parking space. So did you just go out and slash the tires or something? I or? just went out and punched them in the face and they're fine now. <laughs> Stepped on their hand so they couldn't, they couldn't actually use that horn anymore. Can we put this on your show? This, so when you have guests <laughs> or they come in and they're troubling you by honking their horn too much, just go over and make a fist. Punch them in the face. It works every time. Can you imagine? (laughs) If somebody doesn't like my food, I'm like, right, let the beating begin. Now that the honking matter had been resolved, Mary and I turned to one of the most beloved facets of British home cooking, the Sunday roast. We would try to, growing up, sit down as a family and have a meal together at the weekend because, you know, during the week is so busy and... um, But the weekend's nice. I I really like cooking at the weekends because you can take more time and you can really think about the people that you're cooking for and you're not so rushed. It's not like feeding someone where you just need to feed someone in the week. It's like you can really cook for someone and make a meal. So those Sunday, um, Sunday, we call them Sunday roasts, were a real traditional thing and that's carried on. And that's the kind of meal. So that would be a roast at the centre of the table, like a protein and then like roast potatoes and sweet potatoes, so roast vegetables, like crispy roast vegetables in the oven. And then like a nice sort of red onion, red wine gravy to put over everything. And, and then, of course, Yorkshire puddings, which are central right. to any roast dinner, because that's sort of like a, it's like a popover. You know, they're brilliant. And uh, yeah, so that's the meal. As an aside, my musical guest, Hyphen, whose family is British Indian, did not grow up eating Sunday roasts. However, the importance of the Sunday roast for other families was not lost on him. Just a quick thing about a roast, which I love. So basically, just to say how much of a religious attachment to the roast is this like sacred thing. I So my girlfriend is from England and I was one, I, you know, once going for a walk on Sunday. And I was like, you know what? I'm not really into that. I'm not, not really into a Sunday roast. And her response is without even thinking, fuck you. <laughs> it was such a like, she's like, fuck you, you're wrong. It was so much more than like a, a dis- disagreement over taste. It was like this like blasphemous thing to say. So yeah, we laughed. She was just like instinctive, like, fuck you. No, you're wrong. <laughs> Which I love. Okay, turning back to Mary's Sunday roast. When I noticed her emphasis on the Yorkshire pudding, I had to dig a little deeper. You said it's sort of an essential part of the meal. How does it sort of come together with the other dishes? 
I mean, the the Yorkshire pudding, like when you say, like with my kids or my family, it's like we're having Sunday roast. They'll be like, are you making Yorkshire puddings? And um, <laughs> they're obsessed. Actually, my husband taught me how to make them. I learned how to make popovers from my grandmother when I was growing up. But then my husband taught me how to make like the more traditional, like you do them in a big baking tray or in muffin tins. Yeah. And um, they puff up really big. You pour gravy over it. I love to dip them in gravy the next day. But the main thing is my dad uh, used to have growing up and his mother would make them and, and he would have them as a dessert. So he would have them at the end with golden syrup drizzled uh-huh. over it as a as sweet dessert, which I think maybe comes more from Ireland. So we don't have golden syrup in the US. I take it that it's a sweet syrup. It's a sweet syrup. You could use maple syrup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What would you have instead? Well, you know, it's funny. In, in the U.S., popovers are, I think, typically thought of as more of like a breakfast brunchy kind of thing. And so oh. the way I the way I always knew to eat no. popovers <laughs> would be <laughs> to put like strawberry butter or something like oh, that okay. in the popover. It would, it's a little counterintuitive, frankly, to put gravy on, on oh top. My it, it's gosh. like the mental association is like with, like with pancakes, right? Peter, you have not lived. <laughs> okay. No, you haven't okay. lived until when you come to London, I am doing this for you and okay. it, you're going to love it. They're crispy on the outside and they're soft on the inside. And they're basically a vessel to wipe around the plate and sort of soak up all of the leftover gravy. Oh, see, I love this. I love this. Yum. So good. And they're also something you have on the side and I'm a picker. So you just go across and you have like a pile high plate of them and you pull off a bit of Yorkshire pudding and just dunk it into the gravy. I promise you, trust me, you're going to love it. Okay, okay. <laughs> but I didn't know that. I didn't know a popover. I mean, I've made them, but I've always made them. I only have them either with the like the Sunday roast or the celebration meal or with maple syrup or, yeah. you know, with the sweet, not, not with jam as a breakfast. I think it somehow has slid into American cuisine as sort of a, a morning thing. Can I tell you, though, my kids would love it if I made them Yorkshire puddings for breakfast and go. just put jam on it. I might try it. OK, so let me then turn the tables on you and say you should try <laughs> making Yorkshire puddings for I'm breakfast. I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm open to it. Great. <laughs> now I'm going to be an obnoxious American go and on. ask about... I'm half American. Yes, of course. Yes. So I'm and, used to it. Okay, you're like, <laughs> half of me, it's obnoxious. Um, there's, of course, a Yorkshire pudding. There's sticky toffee pudding, which is a lovely dessert. There's figgy pudding. And then there's black pudding, which is, you know, a blood sausage. Not, yeah. What is the unifying puddingness to all these different puddings? I guess, what is what makes a pudding a pudding? It's a very interesting point. I suppose it's sort of like... I don't know about black pudding because black pudding is pretty shocking when you find out the (laughs) ingredients. But the others are based around sort of a batter, I suppose. And there's sort of like more of a cakey batter consistency, like a Yorkshire pudding is almost like a, a batter or a pancake mix kind of ingredients. And then it's just you cook it really hot in the oven. So they pop up and they puff up. So and then and then sticky toffee pudding is absolutely one of my favorite desserts. So we, if those are more steamed puddings and they would be baked too. Okay, I think this makes sense now. That Yeah, there's a, a batter that comes together and you cook it. Now I, I want to eat sticky toffee pudding, obviously. <laughs> Such a good dessert. I could pretty much have sticky toffee pudding any day and all the time. Turning to the British Home Pantry, 
I asked Mary about one sauce that I just had a hunch that she loved. One of the things I noticed on the show is that you have a particular affinity for a condiment, Worcestershire、uh, sauce. I love Worcestershire sauce. It's got real umami. It's such a great flavor. It's such a brilliant thing to have in the in the larder to just you know to use to flavor so many things. Yeah, and I find it such an interesting、uh, ingredient because it has such a complex flavor, right?、Um, it really does. That's why I love it because when you look at it, it's got so many. Spices and flavors, and and the the somebody's like perfected this amazing thing, and、um, I started cooking with it more and more. I mean, really, in the last few years, because before traditionally the only use that I ever knew of was Worcestershire Worcestershire sauce goes, and and I still don't know. I never know. I'd say Worcestershire sauce or Worcester sauce. Yeah. So yeah. I usually mix it up. <laughs>、um, I think I used to say Worcestershire Worcestershire sauce. It's mainly in a Bloody Mary. So it's like vodka, tomato juice, celery salt, Worcestershire sauce, Tabasco. That's right. right. So that's why I had it in my in my larder, and then I was like, oh, hang on a minute, and I was making, I think I was making a shepherd's pie. And it's amazing how in the U.S. even it's it's in so many larders, people have it. They just and why、uh, is that? Do you think? Do you think it's because of the Bloody Mary? Because for me, it was because of the Bloody Mary. The Bloody Mary. I never would have bought it otherwise. That is the the singular reason why I think everybody has it. Yeah. But it's just sitting there, kind of like waiting for people to. It is. It's like that toy that you forgot, <laughs> and you're like, it's in the.、Yes. Going, I'm literally one of the most clever, like. Flavors in your whole kitchen. Come and find me, and you can use me in so many things. <laughs> yes, so good. And I did a Bloody Mary、um, dip with Op- on the Oprah Winfrey show, which I was really happy Ooh, with. That's nice. Yeah, and I was like just sort of daydreaming about what to cook with Oprah because、yeah. I knew she was going to be a guest. I know she sort of is a great entertainer, so I thought like a, some, a nice sort of dip for when her guests arrive, and so. I just thought I haven't ever had a Bloody Mary dip, so I made it as I would like a Bloody Mary, but used the passata and a little bit of olive oil and heated it all through. And then I did these little—I got the tiny, like little bite-sized pieces—and they do need to. I would urge if anyone makes them, make them bite-sized because I hate like when you get an hors d'oeuvre or something and it's it's really two bites, but you put it in one and it just ruins. It's so embarrassing. <laughs>、yes. Um, so a little, a bite-sized piece of focaccia and a little olive and a little piece of celery on a stick, and then you dip it into the into the Bloody Mary dip. It's such a tasty bite. Oh, that sounds lovely. That sounds absolutely. It's really、lovely. good. I'd like to make that for you as well. Okay, all right. We're getting a menu together now. So Yorkshire puddings, gravy, <laughs> Bloody Mary dip, Bloody Mary, Mary dip. dip. <laughs> Quite random, but we're going to keep adding. Maybe I think we should put sticky toffee pudding on there. Sticky toffee pudding, yes. Oh my god, it's it's one of the. Or would you like a trifle? I think I have to have a trifle too. I've never actually had a proper British <gasps> trifle. Oh, so good! It's so good. Do you like jelly and custard? I love jelly and custard. So okay, yeah, so take me through a layer by layer of your dream trifle. So it's quite retro. It's come back in fashion, I would hope. But it's something more from the sort of seventies, or or kids party food kind of thing. You need to build up layers, so you get a glass bowl, and at the bottom I would put like a little layer of jelly. Let that set. Then you put broken up bits of Madeira cake or cake、mm. of your choice. Great way of using any leftover things like that. And so, wait, what flavor jelly is the jelly? I would personally use a raspberry or a strawberry, but、okay. I mean. 
I'm going I'm going classic trifle for you. Okay. So I'm going raspberry or strawberry jelly, then a vanilla cake, because we're going classic, like a vanilla loaf cake broken up into chunks. Then I would put a layer of custard over that to sort of soak into the cake. Oh and then goodness. another layer of jelly. So another layer of the strawberry or raspberry jelly. So now you've got the two layers, then another layer of custard and cake. And then you top it up with whipped cream and like shards oh. of chocolate. It's so good. Oh, my goodness. It's really good. And you have to, when you eat it, you have to get your spoon right down to the bottom of the bowl and up. So you have to have a bit of everything in one bite. My stomach literally just grows. And I want to eat that too. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Mary talked to me about the soundtrack to the pudding-filled Sunday roasts of her childhood. When your parents are Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney, you can bet there's music. Great thing about growing up um, and when I listened to your podcast, which really sort of um, touched, you know, a, a, a nice sort of memory and emotion was that idea of sort of music and food. And a lot of my food memories are dad and dad and mum and dad coming back from the studio and playing whatever they'd been recording that day. And then us all preparing food together and sitting down and eating. There was always music in the house. And as I say, it would really, a lot of the music would be either the music that mum and dad had been recording. So they would be recording in the studio and then come back and play it to us. And it would always be quite loud, which was quite fun. So it sort of make you dance around. Other than that, mum and dad would listen to, like my mum loved Neil Young. We'd listen to a lot of Neil Young, Stevie Wonder, a lot of, you know, Steely Dan, a lot of good music. I love listening to Nina Simone when I'm cooking at the moment. Oh, yes. Um, oh, yes. So, yeah, a lot of good music and and just creates a, a great atmosphere, doesn't it? Yeah. But mainly, mainly I remember songs that mum and dad were recording. Is there a song, a particular song of your that, you, that your mom and dad would play that kind of sticks out in your mind? There's an album called Ram. We would go to Scotland a lot growing up and there was a little recording studio. It was a very remote farm. And so it was really like living off the land feeling. And it was really basic. Nobody else around, very basic, really small house. All of me and my siblings all shared one room. And so it was very intimate. We were all together. And they that time, Ram really encapsulates that time because the recording of it is a very sort of raw production I think it was done on a four track on the studio off in a barn so yeah and it's even got a picture of one of the rams on the cover that my mum took which were on the farm because they were like sheep around and they so yeah ram that album dancing around to that in the kitchen what you're describing also makes me think about the iconic photo of you and your father of course yeah that that photograph was taken in Scotland too oh sorry I can't no 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 it's it's just such a beautiful moment captured in that image you know why I think that is so beautiful that photograph because I didn't really appreciate it you know growing up you kind of it's just a picture that you see all the time but when I look at it now and I actually have it in the room here that that we're talking that I'm talking in with Mm -hmm. you I it that is taken in Scotland so sort of the soft view in the background is Scottish land which I'm you know I'm very you know my heart, part of my heart is in Scotland always for that. But also it's like, why am I zipped up in the jacket? Have you ever thought that? 
Why no, is that baby zipped up? I, I just thought it was sort of like a cute aspect to the picture. But yeah, what, what is the story behind that? <laughs> so it's and it's, so it's beautiful sunlight. So basically I was like, why am I zipped up in the jacket? I've just sort of taken it given that I'm in the jacket, but yeah. we don't usually zip our kids up. So it was like, and I was like, Dad, why am I in the jacket? And he was like, well, me and your mother had just come back from a horse ride and we wanted to go for a horse ride and we were all there on our own. So they zipped me up in the jacket and we went for a nice little horse ride. That kept me safe and tucked in. Oh, wow. What I love is the light, because I'm a photographer, I look at the light, and it's yeah. that beautiful sunset, warm light that, that when you look at it again, you'll notice it's got that really warm tint. So, yeah. And I can imagine you go off the horse in and just eat a huge meal, which takes us back round to you and me. Yes. Wow. Wow. I didn't even think about it that way. Um, and now I'm going to have to look back at the picture. And indeed, I mean, I think of it in New York City, there being a sort of like two-hour window in the afternoon when the light is just so perfect and everything looks beautiful. And I almost wish <laughs> you could just crystallize the world that way because I feel like I'm a happier person in that light. It feeds the soul, doesn't it, that yes. light? And I do the same thing. And then I'm like, you want to capture it. Yeah. But then you don't. You just want to look at it and look at what that light's hitting and just really like, not go past it without actually acknowledging that yeah. that beauty is in, right in front of you. Can I tell you, Mary, I mean, this is so nerdy, but when we approach that hour, which depends on the, the season when that hits, but, you know, it's typically like late afternoon. I will, if I'm with my friends, we'll like set up the moment where like we have like fruits and like wine and we've got the music ready to go. And then it's like, and go, you know, and then like open the windows and like just sit and just like bask in the light. Literally, you're giving me, this is giving me goosebumps. I really want to come and hang out with you in New York. <laughs> Please. That, I mean, what a cool friend you are. That is a great thing to do. And I might have to, we're kind of inspiring each other to do different things. You in New York, me in London. I think yeah. I'm going to, I'm actually going to do that with my friends now that you've said it. It's good. Fresh fruit and really just get like the best, mm. best, best fruit. Like, you know, yeah. spare no expense. Sweet. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. that you just, you can't, you can't have a disappointing like mealy no, no, nectarine no. or something that you need like bursting in your mouth. Like Garden of Eden kind of fruit. And then, yeah. you know, Got yeah, it. With, with your closest friends, good, soothing music. Play Ram, play Ram one okay. time. See how that is. And think of that light. <laughs> okay, well, our, our next encounter, Mary, is it's all sort of yeah. writing itself. So ram, fruit, perfect light, Yorkshire puddings, <laughs> trifles, and so on. <laughs> Amazing. Mary, I am excited for our future feast, basking in some late afternoon light. The next track from Hyphen is called View from the Middle. Here's how Hyphen explained the inspiration behind the song. Uh, it was like hardcore lockdown in the UK, and... I was just getting quite frustrated about the fact that like, you know, I, I felt like I wasn't progressing the way I wanted to. I felt like I wasn't doing the things I was wanting to do. I was just reflecting on the fact that a lot of good stuff has already happened and I'm just not appreciating that. You're racing to the top of a mountain and you don't appreciate the good things on the way. You're not at the peak of the mountain, but the view from the point where you are is also great. Here is View from the Middle by Hyphen. Welcome, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening in the world. I hope you're having a good day. Maybe we're just trying too hard, and really we're not as far away as we think that we are. Remember back at the start, we would have been amazed with how far we came. But now we're really here, all we do is complain. Running to the finish line in the quickest time, ignoring all the views on the way, what a shame. Growing 
else will do it, not saying that it's boring So let's take a sip and celebrate what we got Nothing be so harsh, always hate what we're not In the summer, always saying that it's way too hot Same with winter, cold breeze, can't wait for it So far away from the top, but the view is still great And the house plus big, but you're chilling with your mates For a minute, can we please stop running? And we'll see that the view from the middle still stunning Yeah, the view from the middle still stunning I remember visiting this house, eight bedrooms But everyone inside it was miserable They didn't recall the warmth of a family meal And actually feel the emptiness they fill with ornate things Family portrait rings Worth as much as people's annual salary They made it to the top but they were sitting there so unhappily They didn't buy the house for themselves They bought it so they looked good in front of everyone else See, they never took a drink and celebrate what they got Every day was so harsh, they hated what they were not In the summer always saying that it's way too hot Same with winter cold breeze, can't wait for it to stop Yeah, we're so far away from the top, but the view is still great And the house plus it big, but you're chilling with your mates for a minute Can we please stop running and we'll see The view from the middle still stunning Yeah, the view from the middle still stunning Up next, we'll hit the streets of London with Jonathan Nunn to learn about the quintessential London meal. And it's probably not what you think. After this. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beat in cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. We've talked about British food in the home with Mary McCartney. Now let's hit the streets of London. And there's no better guide than my next guest, Jonathan Nunn, the founder and editor of Vittles, a food newsletter hosted on Substack. It has some of the most exciting food writing that I've seen in a long time. Imagine combining the irreverence of Lucky Peach, the populism of Jonathan Gold, the poetry of Tejo Rao, and mixing into that a British wit that is all Jonathan Nunn. You can start to imagine what his newsletter is like. I highly, highly recommend checking it out. One of the remarkable things that Jonathan does is write about the foods and restaurants that are so common they go unnoticed by traditional food media. The gems hidden in the everyday places that are part of the rhythm of life in the diverse neighborhoods of London. Jonathan talked about the life experience that untapped this perspective on the city's food. I had like quite a bad time after university in terms of sort of mentally. I didn't particularly like my degree. I didn't do particularly well. And I think like a lot of people who sort of go to university and think it's going to be the best time in their lives and then sort of realize it Mm -hmm. isn't sort of come back home and sort of feel a bit aimless and like, what do I do with my life? Right. And I just used to go on these really long walks from my house late at night, about 10, 11 o'clock. And Boundsbury is pretty far from the centre of London, but I would just walk and walk into the centre. And to sort of break up those stretches, I would eat at 
various places. It became very comforting. It became also a way of knowing the city. I realized that 10 years later that my kind of way of working actually hasn't changed since then. If I want to do some writing, I will just leave the house and walk with kind of no aim or purpose in mind. And sort of restaurants become the way to sort of break that up. One of their pieces that I love the most is what you wrote about fried chicken. And just so our listeners have a sense for your writing style, I wanted to actually read, if you'll indulge me, a passage from that. Yeah, I've never heard my own writing before. No, no one's ever read it back to me. All right, here we are. A chicken shop is much like a football team, a reflection of your ends, something you decide on young and don't deviate from. The actual quality of Morley's chicken over a Sam's or a PFC is incidental next to the fact that for so many people, Morley's is South London, a South London that existed before gentrification, a South London that South Londoners could claim as unique to them, a secret that North London would never get. Its red glow means your home. And then you go on further and end this article with, <laughs> no Londoner can really escape fried chicken. It is the city in its totality with all its faults and fractures, and it tastes too fucking good. So <laughs> I was so surprised to read this because, as you can imagine, I do not associate London with fried chicken. So I wanted to ask you, what inspired you to write this article? My thinking behind this article was about what is the London equivalent of someone writing about pizza in New York? or about tacos in Los Angeles? What is the demotic food that is so ubiquitous that people actually forget to write about it? And the answer is fried chicken. And, and fried chicken in London is this kind of combination of, so obviously fried chicken as a food was sort of a mixture of, it was, I think, Scottish people who started deep frying chicken, the seasoning was uh, developed by black people in the South, in America. And these shops then came sort of marketed back to us with American names, not just Kentucky, but if you go to any kind of area of London, you'll find every single state that you can think of, Tennessee fried chicken, Dixie fried chicken. And they are mainly owned by South Asian immigrants um, the biggest in London are owned by um, Sri Lankans, um, often staffed by Tamil Sri Lankans or Bengalis. And the clientele, although diverse, especially in South London, particularly black Londoners. And it's if you go on the YouTube site of um, a guy called The Chicken Connoisseur, um, you can see how much fried chicken is a part of black London. But it's really a part of, I guess, young London in the sense that the fried chicken shop is where you will go after school if you have kind of a spare pound, a spare pound fifty. It's where you can be fed for not a lot of money. So it is this very complex thing that is also eaten kind of like breathing, just like everyone does it. <laughs> um I don't know if I was, if I breathed fried chicken only, I, I don't know what I would look like. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's incredibly unhealthy and there's a lot to be, um, a lot of critique to be said about not just animal welfare, but I mean, 
staff welfare, about how economically deprived areas of London have a huge amount of chicken shops. They don't give the nutrition that people need. However, they are an incredibly important part of London. And I think what someone like the Chicken Connoisseur does is sort of show alternative ideas about quality, um, which you just wouldn't read about in a paper. Um, and they're the their ideas about quality that kind of every person who eats has, not just kind of like rarefied taste, but just like the taste of everyone. And everyone has it, um, whether it's for the spiciness of some wings or the breading on some chicken. And and that's kind of what I'm interested in. I'm interested in I'm interested in the food that everyone eats. And I, and I'm especially interested in the food that people don't think about writing about. Yeah. Um, but sorry, the, the, the other thing is, I mean, as I allude to in the start of that article, is how tribal people can be about chicken shops. Yeah. So right. as a North Londoner, I grew up with Sam's and I moved to South London three years ago and my chicken shop became Morley's. And, and Morley's has this like incredibly, I don't want to say inflated because I get into trouble, um, but it, it's got this big reputation within South London. And coming from North, I've never really understood Morley's just from a quality point of view because they can be very variable. They're, there's, they're not the same across the board. But what I can never kind of understand as a North Londoner is like what Morley's means to a South Londoner. Um, and that's kind of what I was trying to get, get at in the start of the article. It means more than the chicken. It means more than the quality of the actual food. I should note that Jonathan, in his article, acknowledges, of course, that for the many vegetarians in London, such as Mary McCartney, fried chicken certainly is not a way of life. But I found his emphasis on fried chicken intriguing because I've been to London and it simply never occurred to me to try the fried chicken there. Now, I happen to love fried chicken. In fact, it'd be a candidate for my desert island meal. So I was curious to explore the differences between fried chicken here in the U.S. versus fried chicken over in London. So, you know, in the U.S. at a fried chicken shop, we have like, you know, a pretty standard format for what that meal looks like. You get two pieces or three pieces or four pieces if you're feeling particularly peckish. And then you have some kind of biscuit or bread thing that comes along with it. It could be a roll or a biscuit. And then you've got the sides. And, you know, there's like some sides that are kind of universal, like coleslaw. And there are other sides that are a little more specific, like red beans and rice. Is there that similar sort of uh, standardized framework across chicken shops? Yeah, like chicken shop menus are incredibly standardized. And it's interesting because Popeye's has just opened in London. It's the first branch that's ever been in the UK. They've not got the red beans yet, um, which a lot of people who have had Popeye's um, were kind of upset about. And the biscuits are like essentially scones um, or what we, we would consider scones. And I, I don't think... Londoners have quite got around the fact that you would serve a scone with fried chicken. Like that's quite an alien <laughs> concept. Right. <laughs> I guess the, the menu at a chicken shop would be pieces of chicken um, and then tenders, wings. Wings is a really big part of chicken shop culture. Like I would, mm -hmm. or probably, probably there's more wings are eaten than pieces of, um, of chicken. Like wings are, wings are like a currency. Um, and spicy wings particularly. And then you've got chips, of course. And then apart from that, I mean, there's there's not that many sides. You don't have the side culture 
that America has. You've got chicken burgers, tower burgers, um, which is basically a burger with a hash brown in. Um, but the chicken shops kind of, they vary really on what else they offer because a chicken shop might not just offer chicken. They might also do pizzas. They might do ribs. And the really interesting London variation on this is um, the PFC, which is a Bengali um, variation on the chicken shop where they also serve um, South Asian foods. They serve biryani and they serve things like naga wings. So um, they're made with naga chilies and they might make naga donna or shakura donna. Um, so these are all kind of Bengali evolutions of the chicken shop. What does the P stand for in PFC? So I'm actually not entirely sure. I, I mean, I think stems from perfect. I think it stems <laughs> okay. from perfect fried chicken. I think. I, I don't think it actually kind of has a meaning anymore. It's just PFC. Right. It has become a word in its own right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and they're kind of they're dual spaces, I guess, where you would have school children there and families. At, at, at South London Chicken Shop, you'd mainly get individuals there, but you wouldn't get families and there wouldn't be a lot of seating space to have families. But at a PFC, you kind of have a family sitting down and the mum and dad might be having biryani and curry and the children are having fried chicken. And it's like that kind of space where you can feed a family for a very small amount um, and everyone kind of leaves happy. The other thing is that they all do their own homemade chili sauce, which is like the big thing that sort of marks out a chicken shop. It's like where all that personality, all the personality of the owner goes into that chili sauce rather than the actual chicken. One of the things that many non-British folks associate with London is Indian food. I tend to imagine it as a sort of culinary lifeblood for the city. However, from the perspective of a British Indian person, that's not necessarily the case. Hyphen, whose real name is Adarsh, talked about how he sees it. My parents are from India. They moved relative, probably when about my age, so 27, 28. So quite um, traditional food from northern India, northeast. So my parents are a place called Bihar. So all, mostly Indian food, mostly vegetarian Indian food. We ate a little bit of meat at home, but... Um, it's a kind of food, and this is probably an interesting point to raise as a British Asian in the UK. It's a kind of food for a long time, which you couldn't get in restaurants. Like British Indian cuisine in the London, especially but in the U well, the UK, is not normally that true to what you get in Indian households, which is probably true of all foods from other countries to some extent. But it's only recently that you start getting Indian restaurants in England and in London, which are more true to what you'd have like traditionally at home. Or what, you know, what my parents would cook. So that's quite a nice change. And my, yeah, my parents definitely have noticed that and appreciate it. Is there sort of a standard canon for like Indian restaurants in, in London? Uh, we have that kind of phenomenon in the US, but yeah, is that the case also over there? Yeah. So there's like the type of curries you'll get, like a Vindaloo, a Madras. These are all types of curry, which like you probably wouldn't have that much in India. Definitely not in Indian households what most people who don't know what Indian food is like, but go to an Indian place would have, they have a set of associations. And so, so often I'll like go to an Indian restaurant or an Indian restaurant with like a non-Indian friend. And they'll be like, oh, what's your favorite food? And I was like, honestly, 
I, I don't really eat this ever. <laughs> like India is a big place, right? Like South Indian food is completely different. It's only recently that the kind of diversity of Indian food is more apparent in London restaurants or, you know, British restaurants. You're like, take the population of the UK, multiply that by like 15. Exactly. (laughs) The example I always give is that like the distance from where I'm from to where a lot of British Asians are from is about a three hour flight. That's the difference between England and Spain right there or thereabouts so like culturally think how different that is well it's the exact same thing right there's a different language there's a different like cultural heritage different food and when i say that people kind of get like oh okay fine yeah india's not just like one thing it's a big big old place so are you telling me you like tikka masala or not i am not really understanding yeah so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that's the question people yeah that's what the question you get at a restaurant you're like honestly the real answer to that question is a lot longer than probably, you know, <laughs> you want me to go into. Uh, did you, I mean, outside of the food, did you feel like, because as I understand it, this kind of food, you know, a lot of it's kind of like from the Punjab region in mm. India and also in uh, Bangladesh. Did you also face issues of people just like kind of automatically associating you with those cultures, even though you're from a very different kind of place? Yeah, 100%. There's a lot of, and this is, you know, n- neatly linking to some of what I talk about with music, but a lot of it comes down to representation in media and music and TV and this kind of biased representation on TV. They'll see one local Bangladeshi Punjabi restaurant. That's their two references for what Indian people are like. And one of them is, you know, kind of a set of stereotypes, which aren't even true to life anyway. Then you've got one restaurant, which is a small part of India and represents the culture of, a, you know, a group of people from one area and then that very, very, very limited sample size, which is a bad sample size, <laughs> is then a misrepresentation in a large part, is then used to kind of paint a brush across, you know, and, and used to make assumptions over who you are and what you like and what you do. And like, the more and more I get older, the more I realize how much that mindset impacted me and like made me feel about myself. Combine bad representation and then also limited sample size, you get, you know, pretty silly assumptions being made yeah that's a very charitable way to put it it's a yeah 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 that's very charitable (laughs) i guess i'm being overly overly british i overly polite coming back to jonathan i turn to the topic of british food more broadly interestingly as familiar as i am with say french regional food or italian regional food i didn't know much about british regional food Jonathan posited that a combination of wartime rationing during the two world wars and the early onset of industrialization did a lot to pave over regional cuisines. They still show up, though, and Jonathan's written about it. It's fascinating stuff, and what's even better is that traditional regional dishes tend to have colorful names like scouse, rag pudding, hull patties, stargazy pie. One food that stuck out to me, though, is called the saveloy dip a sandwich built around a curious sausage called a saveloy. It's kind of like this big, long, sort of phallic <laughs> sausage, which is like really pert and like red, but like re- like artificially red. <laughs> like it looks like it's kind of been like painted on. It's like incredibly like sort of dense and slightly snappy as well. And like, I guess like the satisfying thing about a saveloy is like the way that the casing snaps. It's like quite stiff. Saveloys you can get in any chip shop in London. And I actually didn't realise until doing the chip shop article that there are many areas in the UK where saveloy is not a kind of standard 
chip shop item. But Savoy dip is a sandwich. So, it, so it's it's a Savoy, and then you've got a bun, uh, sort of like a floury bun, and then you've got stuffing. The stuffing is like like holiday stuffing. Yeah, yeah, exactly like that. Sort of sage and onion stuffing and peas pudding, which is like very pleasingly bland um, and sort of creamy. And then you might have like some mustard with it. And yeah, and that's kind of, that's a Savoy dip, but it is completely unavailable within London, except for a place which is now closed down, actually. I mean, I think that sounds great. Although on paper, doll plus stuffing plus gravy, mustard, and a red penis sausage <laughs> maybe doesn't sound the most appealing <laughs> but um but this is a good thing like but no, yeah no, I, I looked at the picture and yeah no, nothing nothing about british food on paper really sounds appealing a lot of the time like fish and chip shop stuff sounds sort of actively like why why are you sort of doing this like and also like why why is all this food deep fried and like why is there barely no seasoning and I understand all these points, but there's something like, I mean, mushy peas, for example, like mushy peas is like a ubiquitous chip shop side. It's, it doesn't taste of anything. It just kind of vaguely tastes of peas, but they're an incredibly important part of the fish and chip experience. Like I kind of like say there to remind you that like, not everything can be good. Like you you have to have some, there has to be like some pain in your life. Like you can't like go around eating battered fish and chips, like, and have that as a meal. Like there has to be like something good for you and bland and like wholesome in there. And that's what mushy peas are. And they don't really make sense outside of fish and chips, but like they make fish and chips for me. I I think they're like an incredibly key part of it. I asked Mary and Jonathan the classic counter jam question. If you were stuck on a deserted island and you could only eat one British dish for the rest of your life, what would it be? Here's Mary's response. I mean, it's not hugely exciting, but something that I genuinely already probably do eat every single day is toast with a multitude of toppings. And I kind of feel like that is, is that British? I would say so. Because when I go and I kind of feel like toast is British because I'd have toast and marmalade, Mm -hmm. which is delicious like a orange jam yeah. you know if you've had marmalade yeah so that's very british so i might i might have toast and marmalade jonathan naturally had a restaurant in mind this guyanese place which was one of the first i think maybe the first restaurant i ever profiled called kaichi kitchen mm-hmm. in elephant castle run by one woman called Faye. she makes food which i can only describe as it makes you feel good. But it, I, by that, I mean, like, it makes your whole body feel good. It makes you comfortable. I always say that if like, I had to eat anything for the rest of my life, like, I could probably have her roti and curry, be very happy, like, just living off that. Yeah, exactly. We lose our minds over nothing. Feel hopeless. Lose sleep over things no one notices. Like, why is my smile so crooked? I think that I used to be much better looking. We're going to close things out with this nice slow jam from Hyphen. It also has a message I think we should all remind ourselves of from time to time. This voice in our head, we all seem to have it. I don't know why we all have it. But whenever you talk about it, people are like, oh yeah, I feel that too. You really have to work on that voice in your head. It can really 
tell you things that just aren't true about yourself. There's, oh, your friends don't like you. Um, I, I'm having to do some voice in my head coaching right now to myself. I was like, I've messed up this Zoom recording. Everyone hates me. You've ruined it. And I'm like, it's probably not as big a deal as that. I also had an element of like, you know, if I ever have a kid, I'd kind of want them to think about that as well. Like that was kind of in my head, right. like, which is maybe why I was a bit slower because it's meant to be quite like a softer thing, like how you maybe talk to a child. Amen to that. Here's Please Don't Listen by Hyphen. We lose our minds over nothing. Feel hopeless, lose sleep over things no one notices. Like, why is my smile so crooked? I think that I used to be much better looking. Have I put on weight recently? Am I the person I need to be? Embrace the sun blocked out. Hate how I look when I get in the pool. Don't wear the clothes I like. People won't think I'm especially cool. See, I'm insecure about things. And most times I don't even know why. Wake up anxious the next day after some drinks. I'm really not feeling alright. But that's when I feel your hand on my shoulder. And you you remind me it's all in my mind you look pretty good even when you think that you don't your friends love you for you damn i wish that you'd know but that voice in your head says different but please just never listen yeah that voice in your head says different but please just never listen why does it feel like i'm never enough bruise on my head i got several lumps feel like i'm falling bit stuck in my head for days is anyone liking this music i make Am I a good enough singer? Thoughts in my head like I got give up But maybe if I tell you I feel this way sometimes You'll feel less alone That's like everyone else has it figured out Because I promise you, they really don't See, I'm insecure about things And most times I don't even know why Wake up anxious the next day after some drinks I'm really not feeling alright That's when I feel your hand on my shoulder And you remind me it's all in my mind You look pretty good even when you think that you don't Thank you for tuning into this episode of Counter Jam. Keep your head up, folks. We all know these are tough times. Please feel free to drop us a line at hello at counterjam.com, and if you enjoy the show, leave a friendly review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to my guests, Mary McCartney and Jonathan Nunn. Watch Mary's show, Mary Serves It Up, on the Food Network and subscribe to Jonathan's newsletter, Vittles, on Substack. Shout out to Hyphen for the sexy, uplifting lounge rap. Shout out to Food 52, Crutch Phrase Studio for the sound editing, and Counter Jam's talented producer, Harry Sultan. I'm Peter J. Kim, and I'll catch you on the next episode of Counter Jam. Counter Jam.